Lord, truly all we have is Christ. What joyous words that we've just sung. Hallelujah. That all we have, all we need is Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you have led us into paths of refreshing by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for um, plucking us out of the flames and being able to rejoice before you without fear of coming to you. While we come reverently, we come boldly, knowing that we have access to your throne of grace to find help in time of need. Lord, we ask that you would rub that into our souls this week as we have a week of thanksgiving and that it wouldn't be just this time of the year that we're thankful, but truly, as the scriptures say, that we would uh, give thanks continually without ceasing. That, Lord, you have enabled us to do so. We have been a blessed people. Lord, forgive us for a lack of thanksgiving in our souls. Lord, we lift up our congregation to you. We thank you for what you're doing in and through us. We thank you, Lord, for uh, caring for us. Lord, for helping those that have been sick to feel better. We thank you for our expectant mothers, that you would uh, be with them, that you would continue to comfort them and, Lord, grow their little ones in the womb. We thank you for uh, blessing this congregation with such blessings that, Lord, we would hear of um, them coming to faith in Christ in the uh, years ahead, that, Lord, you would save our children that don't know you. Lord, we thank you for uh, what you're doing um, in Quinn and Rose as they prepare for marriage. Lord, we uh, rejoice with them, but we know it's a time of planning and preparation. Lord, that you would um, be with them, that you would encourage them. Lord, thank you for this congregation and how we uh, love this family so well. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom and how to support them uh, better in the days ahead, the weeks ahead as they prepare for their wedding. Lord, we pray that you would um, help everything to come together, that anxiety would uh, go away for them, that they would trust you. And Lord, as you prepare them uh, for marriage, Lord, that you would just um, draw them to yourself and encourage them. Lord, we thank you for uh, being with those that uh, are traveling this week. We pray for your mercies as many go to be with their families that you would guard and protect them on the roadways or in the air as they travel. Father, we pray for those who can't be with us. We think of Janice and others that are, are shut in and not able to be with us and would very much like to be here. So we lift them to you, Lord, and that you would uh, be with them and encourage them. Father, we ask that you would be with um, other churches that are meeting in this area this morning. We uh, lift up North Beaver Baptist to you, Lord, that has been heavy on our hearts as they search for a pastor. We ask that you would be uh, with them, Lord, and that you would provide for them, Lord, that you would encourage them. Thank you um, that we have been able to lift them up and uh, rub shoulders with them a little bit and to seek to bring encouragement to them. Father, we pray uh, for our sister churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We thank you that we can have like-mindedness and encourage uh, them. And so we do lift up Redeeming Grace Church this morning as they meet together without uh, their beloved pastor, that you would be with them, 
Thank you, Lord, that uh, Matt is available to be there, and Lord, that you would bless their gathering this morning. Father, thank you for uh, Jarvis being able to be with us, Lord, that you would bless his family in his absence, and Lord, give him traveling mercies as he heads back to Florida uh, tomorrow. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for him and the brotherhood and the, the fellowship that we've been able to have this weekend, and we pray your blessings upon um, the preaching of the word this morning. Father, we lift up the persecuted church in many lands um, around the world. We lift up Burma this morning to you uh, as your people are suffering there. Uh, much is not covered in the news these days concerning the genocide that's happening there. But in addition to that, that your people are being persecuted in uh, just grievous ways. Lord, would you help them to stand? Would you bring many to faith in Christ through uh, this persecution? And Father, be with our brethren on the other side of the world and help them to stand firm that you might be exalted through them, uh, whether in life or in death. And so give them great boldness. Father, we lift up the other troubled areas of our world. We think of the Ukraine and uh, Russia crisis, that, Lord, you would be with your church there. Lord, would you show mercy uh, in this conflict to bring it to uh, a close? But, Lord, we ask that your will would be done. We know that we cannot see what you are accomplishing, but, Lord, we trust you uh, in all the grievous stories we hear that, Lord, you would show your grace. Father, we ask for your help as we trust you uh, living in a world that is lost and undone. And, Lord, as your people, that we would look with faith to the, to the future and the return of our King, and yet uh, expectantly asking that you would give us uh, patience uh, as we await uh, our final destination to go to the celestial city. And so, Lord, help us and uh, come quickly and yet help us to do business until you come. Father, we ask for uh, just all these uh, other needs um, uh, around our, our area. We continue to thank uh, the Marlowe family, Lord, as uh, Pastor Marlowe continues to heal. We thank you for the um, great news of his movement and uh, being able to even open his eyes and respond with sign language. Oh God, this is a glory to you and a glory to um, your um, desire to be glorified. And uh, we thank you for uh, this answered uh, to prayer. We pray that you continue to be with Megan and the family as they continue to see uh, more and more uh, action from their uh, just uh, precious father and husband. So we ask that you would just continue to work in Ryan's life. Lord, we lift up uh, Pastor Tim and Cindy, Lord, as they continue to travel in Florida, as he shares today, and then as they travel this week back to be with their family for Thanksgiving, you'd give them traveling mercies that you would provide for them. Thank you for uh, the efforts that they are, are giving to um, do some fundraising, but also uh, connect with people concerning uh, Christ alone. Lord, that you would continue to uh, work in this body of believers that are seeking to form into uh, a new church. We lift them to you. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. We pray for sweet fellowship tonight with that group, uh, that you would continue to cement their hearts together as they uh, constitute a new church uh, in the uh, weeks ahead. So we thank you for them, and we ask your blessing upon them and your provision for them. God, we now ask that you would bless our time together in your word. Would you be glorified? 
Would you be magnified that you would not just be glorified in the preaching of your word, but our obedience and application of it to our lives. So do this by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great privilege to have Pastor Jarvis Singleton with us from uh, Redeeming Grace Church down in uh, the Jupiter, Florida area. We're thankful, um, Brother Jarvis, that you're here, and we're grateful to God for what uh, they're accomplishing and how the Lord has grown and great, given great encouragement this year. Uh, lots of answered prayer. There's a, uh, an, an insert in your bulletin with a bio, so I won't uh, give a lot of introduction, but uh, Pastor Jarvis is a graduate of Knox Theological Seminary, uh, a member church with the Reformed Baptist Network. In fact, they were in the network prior to us. Uh, as you know, we support church planting in uh, three different areas right now with Christ Alone down in Wilkesboro, with Jarvis down in Florida, and then internationally with uh, Tiago Oliveira in Portugal at First Baptist in, um, in uh, Lisbon, Portugal. So uh, we have a huge heart for church planting and a, 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 just a wonderful uh, relationship with Jarvis. I think it's been three or four years that we've been partnering with you and uh, just grateful to have uh, Pastor Jarvis with us. Would you stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 9, and I'll have Pastor Jarvis come and lead us in that reading. Pastor Jarvis. Uh, thank you, Pastor Scott, for and Pastor Kaysen, Pastor Quinn, for inviting me to come and visit. Um, I did say that I wanted to come here when the weather was cold because I don't, we don't get much real cold weather in Florida. I never counted on a wind chill of nine degrees. That was um, a little bit more than I asked for, but um, kind of showed me that um, I, I was originally born in Rochester, New York, and this was a clear reminder that Rochester is no longer in me. So, <laughs> so um, but I have enjoyed um, my time here. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, 1995 update, uh, New American um, chapter 9, 1 Samuel, we'll read the entire chapter, this is God's holy word. Then David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there yet, excuse me, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is the, your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? 
Then the king said to Saul, excuse me, the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belongs to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. I want to talk to you this morning on the topic, covenantal kindness. Covenantal kindness. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for this immense privilege that we have to to be in your word today, to hear what you have to tell us, Lord. And, and Lord, we don't take this time lightly, Lord. Um, as your believers, we come and we are excited, we are joyous, knowing that you are going to speak to us. You are going to encourage us. Even as we worship you, Lord, you are going to build us up in your grace through what you have to tell us today. So, Lord, we come excited, we come expecting, and we come with a heart of glorifying you for what you will do. So Father, thank you for this time again. Pray for those who will be hearing here here now in our presence, also who may be watching on Facebook Live. Um, Father, we or in the church website, Father, we thank you for all of this. And we pray that you will give me the words I ought to say, hold back anything I ought not to say. And again, let everything that's said be done for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that when it comes to popular figures recorded in Holy Scripture, King David would be at the top of everyone's list. And this is due to the fact that when we think of his contributions to the Scriptures, we see some of the most cherished, comforting, and perplexing moments which are recorded in the entirety of the Bible. For example, how many of us continually find comfort in passages such as Psalm 23 or Psalm 42 or even Psalm 121? Equally, how many of us have historically cherished the moments such as when Samuel anointed him as king or when he danced as the Ark of the Covenant was being returned back to Jerusalem from the hands of the Philistines or when he defeated the giant Goliath with a stone and a sling? But on the flip side, how many of us still get perplexed when we read about the account of how he committed adultery with Bathsheba? She became pregnant, and he tried to hide the consequences of his sin by killing her husband Uriah in battle. Or how about how he grossly handled the situation with his own children, with two of them going as far as setting traps to rape and murder their other siblings? So when we think on the life and the actions of David, it's, a, it's safe to assume that it covers a wide range of emotions, both from a positive and a negative perspective. However, within the scope of David's life, 
There are also recorded events which, for the most part, have gone unsung. And unfortunately, because they have become unsung, many of us are not fully aware of the full reason why David is called a man after God's own heart. And one of these unsung stories is found right here in our text, 2 Samuel chapter 9, in David's treatment of Mephibosheth. Quite simply, beloved, when I think of a beautiful and exciting and a humbling passage of Scripture, this account ranks near the top of my list. And the reason why it ranks so high is not so much for what it says about David's treatment of Mephibosheth, but rather what it communicates beyond the surface of this story. In short, the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth is nothing more than a picture of the kindness that God shows his people through their union with Jesus Christ. So this is going to be our task today, to unpack this beautiful story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth and then to tie all these observations to how God shows his kindness to those who are saved in Christ. So in an effort to do this, let me give you three points that we're going to cover in this message. Three points we're going to cover in this message. Number one, I want to talk about the calling of Mephibosheth. The calling of Mephibosheth. Secondly, I want to talk about the condition of Mephibosheth. The condition of Mephibosheth. And then third and finally, I want to talk about the charity towards Mephibosheth. The charity towards Mephibosheth. Now, I see some of you are taking notes, so I'll mention these points as we go along. But these will be the third point, the three points that we're going to cover, and we'll talk about them in just a moment. But before we look at these points, and in the effort to get more clarity on what we're going to be talking about, I want to spend a few moments discussing the root of David's kindness in this passage. Namely, it's his, excuse me, namely his relationship with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, is the root of his kindness. And while I want to give, and while I would love to rather, give a thorough explanation of this relationship, for the sake of time, I just want to give a brief summation of it so that we can see how it links to what we're going to be talking about in our three points. Now, as some of you know, Jonathan was Saul's son, and Saul was Israel's first king and David's predecessor to the throne. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the relationship that David had with Jonathan, the most common word we would use to describe it would be friendship. Friendship. And while this assessment wouldn't be wrong, it would be at the same time incomplete. Because when we look at the testimony of Scripture, we see that David and Jonathan's relationship had emotions that were greater than your normal run-of-the-mill friendships. For example, we're told in 1 Samuel 18, chapter, I mean, chapter 18, verse 1, that David and Jonathan's souls were, quote, knit together. In essence, it was as if the two of them had become one flesh. Equally, David takes this even further in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, when he says that Jonathan's love for him was more wonderful than the love of a woman. So by hearing these words, we can see again that we're not talking about your normal run-of-the-mill friendship here. But rather, what we're seeing is that David and Jonathan had a love and had a devotion towards each other that was so powerful, beloved, that even their own feelings about themselves couldn't rival it. Because when one thought about himself, he naturally thought about the other. 
Now, it's saying all this, I don't want you to assume that they never had any disagreements because the Bible does tell us in 1 Samuel 20 a situation where Jonathan did not believe that his father wanted to kill David, and even though David was running from Saul at the time. However, to show the power of their love for one another, when Jonathan found out that Saul was indeed trying to kill David, this is what Jonathan did. His love was so great that he actually turned against his father to protect his friend. And it's on this line of thinking, beloved, where we see that the Bible actually uses a stronger word to describe the essence of this relationship. Namely, the Bible uses the word covenant. Covenant. And this covenant was not only designed to hold them together, but also their respective households. In other words, David and Jonathan's relationship extended much further than their immediate connection. Because in going into covenant with one another, they also went into covenant with each other's descendants. Jonathan makes mention of this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42, when he reminds David, who again, at, who was on the run from Saul at the time, he says these words, we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. So again, we see that the covenant between David and Jonathan had an extension attached to it that went further than themselves. And it's in hearing all of this where we as believers can't help but draw our minds to similarities in which this covenant has with a greater covenant that the Bible speaks about, namely the covenant of grace. You see, like in the case of David and Jonathan, beloved, the covenant of grace is based on a deep love between God the Father and God the Son. And like in the case of David and Jonathan, the covenant of grace extends blessings to the descendants of God the Father and God the Son, namely believers. Thus, we see that the covenant of David and Jonathan, in many ways, it foreshadows the covenant of grace, which the Father and the, has with the Son and has made his people the recipients of this. So with this background in mind, I want to now take a look at our three points. And I want to accomplish two things in doing so. Number one, I want to compare David and Jonathan's covenant with our covenant of grace. But number two, I also want to show how our covenant of grace is actually greater than the one which David and Jonathan has with one another. So let's start to do this by looking at our first point. Again, the first point, the calling of Mephibosheth the calling of Mephibosheth. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we see that God has exalted David to be the king of Israel. And by contrast, the house of Saul has been devastated by the Philistines. And one of the victims of this devastation was David's best friend, Jonathan. However, even though David is aware that his friend has been killed, and that a large portion of the house of Saul, in all intents and purposes, has been wiped out, his love for Jonathan still burns passionately. In fact, it's so passionate that even against all odds, he still seeks to keep his promise in that covenant. Look with me at verse 1 of our passage. Verse 1. David says, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Watch this. For Jonathan's sake, for Jonathan's sake. Now, in response to this question, one of the former servants 
of the house of Saul named Ziba, he informs David that there is indeed a person left in the house of Saul, namely Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was in care of a man named Machir in the land of Lodabar. And by the tone of Ziba's words, I believe that we're left to assume that Mephibosheth was quite possibly the last surviving member of Jonathan's immediate family. Now, in examining this point of the passage, I want to highlight two things here. Two things here. First of all, notice that it is David who does the calling. Notice that it's David who does the calling. It's David who desires to show kindness. It's David who seeks out Mephibosheth. You see, even though David and Jonathan made a covenant that they would take care of each other and each other's descendants, it's very clear that David was the only one who knew about this covenant. In short, Mephibosheth saw no need, or had any desire for that matter, to seek out David for anything because he wasn't aware about any covenantal agreement between David and his father. Therefore, beloved, the execution of this covenant was squarely in the hands of David alone. And when we think about what we're seeing here, it should highlight an important truth about our salvation, a truth that many people don't like to hear, but it's true nonetheless. And that is the truth that it is God who initiates our calling to salvation. Much like David sent Ziba to draw out Mephibosheth, God sends his Holy Spirit to draw out his people. In fact, Jesus says these words clearly in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And how does the father draw us again, beloved? Through the power of his spirit. So salvation is 100% initiated by God. And until we are drawn out by him, we will be just like Mephibosheth people who will see no need nor have any desire to come to him for anything, much more the salvation which he freely gives and that we desperately need. Now, in saying all this, I would be remiss if I failed to mention a point here, which again shows just how much greater the covenant of grace is compared to the covenant between David and Jonathan. And that is, notice the tone of David's question. In short, beloved, he's asking it inquisitively. Again, let's look at that passage. Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness or show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In short, David doesn't know if there are any surviving descendants of the house of Jonathan. And the only way he comes to actually know this, that there are descendants rather, is when Ziba informs him of Mephibosheth. Now, why is this important to note? Why is this important to note? Because in contrast, here's what we discover in the covenant of grace. Namely, every descendant is already known by God the Father and God the Son from all eternity. You see, there's no guesswork, beloved, when who is going to get saved in the covenant of grace because God has already chosen those people beforehand. Here's an example of, of what we see about this in Scripture. The Lord states in his high priestly prayer in John 17, these words, all whom have been given to him by the father has been given eternal life. Luke records in Acts 13, when Paul gave the gospel to the Gentiles, that, quote, they rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. 
and quite possibly the most direct verse in scripture pertaining to this issue is found in Ephesians 1.4, where we're told that God the Father chose us in him, namely God the Son, before the foundation of the world. So in a nutshell, beloved, here's what I'm trying to say. If you are in Christ, your salvation did not come on the fly. God did not decide to save you when he saved you. But rather, from all eternity, God had a set purpose. He had a set design to save you through the finished work of Christ. Beloved, from the very beginning, God knew your name, and he appointed you at a sovereign time of his choosing to be a benefactor of his saving grace, and nothing was going to get in the way of you receiving that. In essence, if you are saved, then know it was God's will to do this for you, as Paul says again, before the foundation of the world. Thus, your salvation did not come by you choosing God, but rather you were saved because God chose you. Now, the magnitude of this truth will become more powerful when we look at our next point, namely the condition of Mephibosheth. But let's continue on this current point and look at a second observation we can take from David's words. Namely, notice the type of kindness David desires to show Mephibosheth. Notice the type of kindness that David desires to show Mephibosheth. Because it's not your general type of kindness. Look at verse 3. David wants to show Mephibosheth the kindness of God. The kindness of God. Like we said before, David still has a burning love for Jonathan. And even though Jonathan is no longer alive, it's this passion which is moving David to fulfill his end of the covenantal promises by making Mephibosheth a vessel of God's kindness. And again, when we relate what we're seeing to our salvation story, we come to understand that God has done the same thing with his people. Namely, beloved, because God the Father has a passionate love for God the Son, he finds pleasure in showing his kindness in the covenant of grace to all those in his Son. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it means that the Father now views those in Christ through the lens of Christ. Because the Father has a passionate love for the Son, he will treat those in his Son with passionate love as well. Now again, beloved, why is this important to understand? Because when we're facing times in our lives which we are not feeling like one of God's children or we're not feeling his love for us, we won't allow those circumstances that we're presently in to tell us it is not with us. But rather, we will let our union with Christ and the covenant of grace which we are partakers of and is become an expression of God's kindness and remind us again of God's love for us. You know, throughout my time in ministry, I've often talked with many people who, in the midst of their pains, in the midst of their struggles, they'll start to feel that God has somehow forgotten about them or has turned his back on them in some way. And it's based largely on the fact of the situations that they're presently facing. And oftentimes I've had to tell them that even in the midst of a struggle, God has not detached them from his love, but rather even in their pains, even in their struggles, they need to recognize the fact that their lives are hidden in Christ. So thus, beloved, here's what I'm saying. 
The moment that God will forget about us is the moment that he forgets about his son, who is our representative and who is our life. And as far as God turning his back on us, we shouldn't forget, beloved, that God has already poured out his wrath on Christ by putting him on Calvary's cross to pay for the many sins and the many transgressions which we have already committed. So, beloved, based on these truths, even in the constant struggles that we face in life, we should have peace in the Lord knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. In fact, I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his book, By Grace Alone. Here's what he says. He says, if we want to know God and to hear his heartbeat for us, we must realize that his son died on the cross for us. It is as God himself says to us, if you want to know me and to understand my commitment to save and bless you, if you want to be sure of the privileges that are yours and the security I have provided for you, then you must not look first at the circumstances of your life and conclude, things are going well for me, therefore God must love me. No, beloved, you must look at the cross and say, my God was willing to give his son for me. That is why I know he loves me, close quote. You see, beloved, we need to understand that even in our trials, okay, even in our trials, God's kindness is on display. Because if we keep in mind that the pains we are going through isn't even a fraction of what we truly deserve to go through and understand that God is always available and providing comfort and providing relief in those times of struggle, we will come to see that God's kindness is ever present with us, no matter the season, no matter the circumstance we face, because it is a kindness which finds its root in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we see that the calling of Mephibosheth is a point that speaks heavily towards the salvation that we have been given. But now transitioning into our second main point, we also see that the condition of Mephibosheth speaks just as much. The condition of Mephibosheth. Now in verse 3, we're given a glimpse into the life of Mephibosheth when Ziba tells David about him and he describes him in verse 3, as being, quote, crippled in both feet. Crippled in both feet. Equally, the writer of this narrative ends this story, if you notice, in verse 13, by reminding us again that Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. Now, in 2 Samuel 4, we're given the story of how Mephibosheth ended up in this condition because we're told that he was only five years old when the house of Saul was ravaged by the Philistines. And when the woman who was nursing him at the time tried to get Mephibosheth away from what was happening by picking him up and running away from the chaos, she actually, she accidentally rather dropped him, thus causing him to shatter bones in both of his feet. So not only did Mephibosheth lose his family during that time, but he also became lame in the process. Thus, we see that from a young age, Mephibosheth had truly lived a life of pain and struggle. However, in saying this, we need to answer this question. Why is Mephibosheth's condition mentioned twice in this passage, especially at the end? Because it's kind of a weird way to end a story, okay? Well, beloved, in Hebrew, whenever something is mentioned more than once, it informs us of its heavy significance, okay? 
And it's in knowing this that I think we can safely come to the conclusion that the writer of this narrative is highlighting that Mephibosheth was in and of himself out of place, or he was unworthy in many respects. In other words, beloved, if we were to create a mental picture of the people living in royalty under King David, Mephibosheth would stick out like the proverbial sore thumb. He would be the peculiar person, or as one, set, one famous Sesame Street song would put it, Mephibosheth was the one thing that's not like the others. So what this tells us is that the only reason why Mephibosheth was there was because of grace, was because of grace. In fact, Mephibosheth himself even recognizes this in verse 8 when he tells David these words, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? You know, for five and a half years, right before um, we planted Redeeming Grace, I worked as a staff associate minister at Glendale Baptist Church in Miami, which was our planting, our church that planted us, under Pastor Ken Jones. And given the fact that the church without traffic was 90 minutes away from my home in West Palm Beach, it goes without saying that I did my share of heavy driving on the Florida Turnpike. In fact, during those five and a half years, I actually went through three cars. And many times while driving on the Turnpike, I ran across my share of, and I want to be as gently as I can to say this, expired animals, and essentially roadkill, okay, with many of them being dogs. And every time I came across one of these expired animals or roadkill, my natural reaction was to look away from it. Because to me, beloved, to look at roadkill, I don't know about you, but to look at roadkill is not the same as looking at a rose garden, okay? It's not like looking at the changing of the color of the leaves during the fall season, but rather it's a ghastly sight. It's a totally disgusting scene to observe. And this is the thought that Mephibosheth has about himself. In essence, he's telling David, I'm ghastly. I'm disgusting to look at. I'm not someone of value or honor. So why me? Why me? And likewise, beloved, when we look at the holiness of our God and then we compare his holiness to our condition, we come to realize that like Mephibosheth, we too are a ghastly sight. We too are disgusting to look at. We too are not people of value, people of honor. So the question becomes, why us? Why us? And the answer to that question is the same one that applies to Mephibosheth, beloved. It's not about us. It's about someone else, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one, as the song says, who is altogether lovely. Again, he is the one who is deeply loved and finds the pleasure of God the Father. And by virtue of our union with him, we also are the benefactors of the Father's deep love and pleasure. A deep love and pleasure that is showered on us, rather, again, by the grace of God and that grace alone. Now, in saying all this, here again is where we find another truth, where the covenant of grace is a greater covenant. Namely, since we are the benefactors of the Father's deep love and pleasure, this also means that he will not keep us in our ghastly state where he found us, but rather he desires to conform us to the image of his Son. The Apostle Paul says this directly in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He says these words, For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, 
he predestined, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And these he also predestined, he also called, these he also called, he also justified, and these he also justified, he also glorified. So while Mephibosheth may have received many blessings from David, beloved, there was one thing David could not do for him. And you want to know what that was? He couldn't change his crippled state. However, for those of us who are partakers of the work of Christ, we have been given the privilege not only of eternal blessings by our Heavenly Father, but we can also look forward to one day being totally liberated from all of the sins, all of the circumstances that have afflicted and crippled us. Beloved, if you are in the covenant of grace, your destiny is not to be marred forever in the state of sin, but rather your destiny is to be made pure to be presented to your Lord Jesus in a state of holiness, having neither spot nor wrinkle. So just like Mephibosheth, we come to our king crippled and afflicted. However, unlike Mephibosheth, in the covenant of grace, we have a promise that our king will heal us. He will make us pure. He will make us stand in his presence in a state of glory and exceeding joy. And with this stated, we've now come to the last point of this message. The charity towards Mephibosheth. The charity towards Mephibosheth. Let's look at verse 6 and read down to the first part of verse 10. Starting at verse 6, read now to the first part of verse 10. It reads again, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now, we have mentioned indirectly in several spots the charity which David showed to Mephibosheth all throughout this message. However, in this last point, I want to deal with this issue more directly. Because notice at the beginning of these verses, which we read, we see that Mephibosheth, upon seeing David, he falls prostrate and submits himself totally to him. Now, the importance of this act cannot be overlooked, beloved, because it was a custom for the new king, that is, if it wasn't a familial succession, much like in the case of David and um, Solomon, where a son succeeds a father, but it was the custom of the new king to totally wipe out the descendants of the former king so that his rule wasn't threatened in any way, okay? In short, it signified a new beginning. Thus, Mephibosheth had every reason to believe that David was summoning him to finish the job because remember, Mephibosheth had no idea of any covenant between David and his grandfather, Jonathan. 
I mean, or his father, Jonathan, excuse me. So you can imagine as he bows to David, Mephibosheth is dealing with a fear unlike any he's probably ever experienced in his life. However, in a moment of utter amazement, beloved, David says these words to him in verse 7. Do not fear. Do not fear. In essence, David is saying to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, I'm not going to kill you. But rather, because of your father, Jonathan, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And as we look deeper into these blessings, we start in verse 7, we see that Mephibosheth receives three unique things. Three unique things. The first thing is something we discuss all throughout this message, and that is David showers his love and affection upon Mephibosheth. He showers his love and affection upon Mephibosheth. Again, he says, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Again, there is nothing about Mephibosheth in and of himself which is deserving of these blessings, but rather he is being rewarded solely on the basis of someone else. It is solely because of David's love, solely because of David's affection for Jonathan, that Mephibosheth is now a receiver of this love and affection which he is now being given. But here's the second thing we need to keep in mind. Secondly, David is going to give Saul's land to Mephibosheth. David is going to give Saul's land to Mephibosheth. He says, I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. Now, it's important to note, beloved, that during this time, and even in our time today, land was power. Land was power. And thus, most kings looked to acquire as much land as they possibly could, because the more land they had, the more power they had. And thus, beloved, as we see in this case, notice what we're seeing here is a little bit different. David isn't trying to gather more land. He's doing the opposite. He's giving land to Mephibosheth. Or if I can put it this way, and maybe you've heard this before, David is making Mephibosheth a joint heir with him. A joint heir. And again, beloved, this blessing has nothing to do with Mephibosheth. But rather, Mephibosheth's status as a joint heir is solely based on David's love for him rooted in the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Now here's the third and final thing that we see. A third and final thing. David adopts Mephibosheth. David adopts Mephibosheth. Three times David tells him, you shall eat at my table regularly. In short, David makes Mephibosheth a member of his family. Mephibosheth is received in the number and he's given all the rights all the privileges that come from being connected with the king. So in essence, David takes him in as a child of the king. So with all this said, you can imagine, as Mephibosheth is hearing all this, that he's going through a litany of emotions here. He probably wants to cry. His knees are probably wobbly. Or we can't even rule out the fact that he probably fainted in hearing all this. Because in the blink of an eye, beloved, he has moved from rags to royalty, from being poor to the penthouse, and from being deplorable to being dignified. Now let's go back for a moment and retrace everything that we've discussed concerning Mephibosheth in this story. He loses his family at a young age, and while they're being killed, he's dropped by his nurse, who's trying to escape, 
and thus he becomes lame for the rest of his life. After some time, he's found by the king's servant, Ziba, corralled in a house in the land of Lodabar. And when he's found, he's crippled, he's poor, and to be honest, he's also pathetic. Then he's taken to the king, all the while petrified that he's going to be killed off because of his relationship to the former king, Saul. But instead, because of his father, Jonathan, and the loving covenant he had with the new king, David, he is showered with love and affection. The riches of his family are restored back to him, and he is adopted into the king's family. Now, beloved, you talk about a feel-good story, okay? A feel-good story. You talk about a Hollywood ending. Here it is right here, beloved. It doesn't get any better than this. And in saying all this, there may be some of you that are saying, wow, you know, Mephibosheth is really blessed. He, he came through at the end. Or there might be even some of you saying, well, I'm going to start making some phone calls around to family members to see if there's any covenants out there for me that I can get hooked up like this. Well, beloved, here's the great news that I have for you. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are in the covenant of grace, you do have someone who has hooked you up like this. Beloved, when the Holy Spirit came to you, didn't he find you poor in spirit? Didn't he find you crippled in sin? Didn't he find you pathetic in nature? However, because God had a covenant with Christ and you were chosen in him, you have become a partaker and have become blessed in this covenant of grace. You see, beloved, although we are undeserving of all of God's blessings, nevertheless, again, we have been showered with love and affection from God. We have become joint heirs with Christ, and we have been adopted as children of the living of God. And just like in the case of Mephibosheth, all this happened immediately. We went from filthy rags to the riches of Christ. We went from being poor in spirit to coming to the penthouse of heaven. We went from being deplorable in our state of sin to being dignified in our calling of being part of a royal priesthood. And in saying this, again, here is where we find where the covenant of grace is greater. Because while Mephibosheth's blessings are temporal, beloved, the blessings we receive in Christ are eternal. You see, Mephibosheth, for all he's just acquired, was only going to have these blessings for a limited amount of time. For example, when he dies, he would no longer get to enjoy the things that he was given by David. Or, as we will later see in 2 Samuel 16, when David's on the run, this time from his son Absalom, that Ziba actually lies about Mephibosheth's loyalty to David and because of this, David actually takes away everything he just gave him and gave it to Ziba. So it seems that even in, what, even in giving what he did to Mephibosheth, David still exercises his right to pull the string and yank everything he gave him to, on this account. However, on the flip side, for those of us who are in Christ, again, beloved, the showering of love we receive is everlasting. Our status as joint heirs is everlasting. Our adoption as children of the living God is everlasting. You see, unlike David and Jonathan, our covenant makers are eternal. And because they are eternal, beloved, this means that their love towards us, our status in them, and the blessings which they provide will be so as well. 
Thus, there is no yanking away of the blessings which we have received from the hands of God because, beloved, they are ours forever. And, beloved, at the end of the day, isn't that good news? Isn't it good news to know that no matter how crippling, how many crippling afflictions you face in your life, God's love is always by your side? Isn't it good to know that even though you may not have all the things you want in this life, you are destined to be a joint heir with Christ? And isn't it good news to know that even though you may spend your life being constantly rejected by others, God has adopted you and your identity is that you are now a children, you are now children of the living God. Beloved, all these blessings and more have been bestowed upon you, not because of who you are, but because God has saw fit to make you a partaker of his covenant of grace, a covenant which is rooted and guaranteed through the love which he has for his son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we've seen today, the story of Mephibosheth is a true rags to riches story. And it's definitely one that reflects how David is truly a man after God's own heart. And as we meditate and think upon what we heard today, let us never forget, beloved, that all of us in Christ are Mephibosheths. All of us are ghastly sights. All of us should be living our lives separate from the eternal king. And none of us have any claim to sit at the king's table and dine as one of his beloved children in and apart from Christ. However, because of the covenant of grace, because of the covenant which God the Father has made with God the Son, instead of getting what we deserve, beloved, we are people who are loved. We are people who are healed. We are people who are accepted and blessed. And we owe all of this to the one who isn't after God's own heart, but to the one who possesses the very heart and nature of God himself, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ. So, beloved, it's my prayer that when you come to read this story again, that you will not just look at it and say, well, wow, look at how wonderful, look at how blessed Mephibosheth is to have someone as kind and merciful as David. But in addition, you will again see yourself as Mephibosheth and say, wow, look at how wonderful, look at how blessed I am to have a kind and merciful father who loves me even more because he has blessed me through the love of his son, Jesus Christ. Because beloved, in the end, that is the message which truly brings out the beauty of this story when it comes to us who are partakers of God's covenant of grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these stories, Lord, and, and thank you how they all relate back to the work of Christ and equally how that work applies to us. Lord, again, all of us are Mephibosheths. All of us are ghastly sights. We are people who, who don't deserve anything from your hand. But nevertheless, through your graciousness, through your kindness, you have done just that. You have given us all things, all spiritual things in the heavenly realm through Christ. So, Father, as we go through this week where we will end up on Thursday at a day called Thanksgiving, as we sit around tables thanking you for what you've done for us this year with our jobs, with our families, with, with, with um, opportunities, Lord, never let us forget the greatest thing that we can bless you and give you thanks for. And that's a salvation that you have given us in Christ. 
one that we have received by your gracious hand, one that can never be taken away from us, and one that we will live in forever and ever as your dear children. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this story. Thank you for, again, the reminder of what we have been given. And we ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.